Chapter six, the tame, tumultuous, taciturn, talkative teen, exploring the unpredictable life of the teenager. Living with teenagers is often similar to living through a tornado, amen? You're never quite sure where a tornado is going to touch down, just as you can never be quite sure of the behavior of your teen. You can think everything is fine and dandy when they leave for school, only to find on their return that they appear some odd body part and are now sporting a tattoo. God obviously knew about teenagers when he added Leviticus 19.28. Look it up. I think you'll find it most interesting. If you have ever lived through a tornado, you know that it can be quite a thrill. There is a mixture of extreme fear, excitement, wonder, and when it's finally over, relief. I think you can say about the same thing for raising teens. If you're a parent of a teen, you'll probably experience thrill, fear, excitement, wonder, and relief, and all before 10 in the morning. I'm confident most of us could add anger to the list, too, but I decided we wouldn't go in that direction. One very important piece of information I learned early on in my child-rearing years is never, and I emphasize the word never with all caps, say your child will not do something. Just as sure as I'm sitting here writing this book, whatever you say your child will never do, that they will do. This is especially true of teens. I have learned the hard way to keep my big fat mouth shut and pray harder. This keeps me from having to eat so many of my words. There's a bumper sticker that reads, Lord, let my words be sweet and tender, because tomorrow I may have to eat them. We would be wise to adhere to that little piece of advice. Keeping my tongue intact comes very difficult for me. I wonder if any of you incur the same problem. I have a feeling that I'm not alone in this matter. That little slippery body part has been the cause of much trouble and trials for many a soul. Since it is sometimes wise to just keep quiet when we are dealing with our teens, it's appropriate to check out what the Bible has to say about, as I believe Chuck Swindoll puts it, that three-inch lightning rod that makes its home behind our incisors. I think there is more than one reason God put our tongue behind our lips and our teeth. If we cannot keep our lips shut, we can at least grit our teeth. This this gives us two opportunities to tame that torch. What exactly does the Bible have to say about our tongues? James is anything but flattering in his description. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider What a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James 3, 5 through 8. The tongue is without a doubt a major study in contrast. With it, we can attack and destroy like a deadly bolt of lightning. On the flip side, we can encourage and strengthen and build others up. Scripture has much to say regarding the subject. 
Jesus himself spoke many times on this very issue. Since Christ is our supreme example, we would do well to examine his words on the subject. In Matthew 12, 34 through 37, Jesus states, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus understood very well that the mouth or tongue was only a symptom of the true problem. The words that we speak come from the condition of our hearts. We may be able to fake it for a brief period of time, but if you turn up the heat, the pot will inevitably boil over. Jesus again tells us in Luke 6, 43-45, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Since we are to be conforming to the image of Christ, just exactly how did Christ use his mouth? How did he communicate with others? Jesus would simplify and make clear issues that others had complicated. He would inspire others and motivate them to think and search their own hearts. He used examples that they could relate to. He was not out to impress people. He cared very little what others thought about him. He was clear and precise, and he did not major on the minors. He emphasized the essentials of life. Jesus left things unsaid. Economy of words punctuated and held together with truth, forcing those he spoke with to think for themselves. He spent so much more than he said. Unfortunately, most of us say much more than we mean. We would do well to follow the example Jesus set out for us. Jesus has promised to give us his words and wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells us in Luke twenty-one fourteen through 15, But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Paul also tells us in Colossians, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone in Colossians 4, 6. We are not to waste our words. Sometimes it's better to remain silent. My old Annie Sue had a wonderful saying, It's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and to remove all doubt. This thought, I am told, she snitched from Mark Twain. The little book of James in the New Testament gives us no less than 11 applications for the tongue. The book of Proverbs written by Solomon also gives us insight. 
Let's take a look at what each has to say and try to apply what we learn to our own pattern of speech. Number one, we are to be slow to speak. We've already noted how Jesus did not waste his words. James also adds, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be slow. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James 1.19. Solomon, the wisest man ever to live, tells us in Proverbs 10.19-21, When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. Again, he tells us in Proverbs seventeen twenty-seven through 28, A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. I guess my old Annie Sue and Mark Twain hit the bullseye. Amen? Loose lips sink ships. They also wreck lives. The words we speak have the power to break hearts, ruin reputations, injure, and destroy. We must think before we speak. This is especially true when we're dealing with our teens. Number two, we must keep a tight rein on our tongue, guarding it with all diligence. James tells us if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless, James 1.26. And Solomon also tells us, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment, Proverbs 12 18 through 19. Again, Proverbs 21, 23. He who guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from calamity. And again, in Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Number three. We must speak knowing we are going to be judged. James tells us, speak and act as though those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, James 2.12. Jesus also tells us in Matthew, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew 12.36-37. Number four, we are not to slander. Scripture also tells us in James, 411. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. In Ephesians 431, Paul tells us, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Peter also adds, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind in 1 Peter 2, 1. Slander means to speak critically of another person with the intention of hurting him. A malicious statement that injures the reputation 
or well-being of another. There was an old story of a young man during the Middle Ages who went to a monk saying he had sinned by telling slanderous statements about someone and he wanted to know what he should now do. The wise monk told him to put a feather on every doorstep in town. The young man left and did as he was instructed. He returned to the monk and asked if there was anything else he could do. The monk told him to go back and pick up all the feathers. Excitedly, the young man said that they would have been an odd possibility since the wind would have blown them all away, all over the town by that time. At that, the monk replied, your slanderous word has also become impossible to retrieve. Just as the toothpaste cannot go back into the tube, once the words come out of your mouth, you cannot put them back. I have found that most words spoken in anger and haste are a waste. Unfortunately, this is all too common in our discussions with our teens. Tempers flare and words start to fly. Take some hard-earned advice. Pull away, cool off, and regain your focus. You will have less to regret. Number five, do not grumble. James tells us, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door, James 5, 9. Paul also tells us in Philippians, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Philippians two fourteen through 15. This passage in Philippians is a great one for both our teens and us. So much of our time is spent wasted grumbling and complaining and arguing, none of which, I might add, counts for anything. If I read verse 14 correctly, that word everything is pretty much all-inclusive. That, my dear friends, is very convicting. Number six, we are not to swear. We are told in James, above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned, James five twelve. We are also to put away perversity in our speech. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips, Proverbs four twenty four. God says that he hates perverse speech. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Proverbs eight thirteen. Paul also adds in Colossians, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Teens, as well as adults, have a tendency to talk trashy. God is clear. If we are his children, we should rid ourselves of this. Like most habits, filthy language begins in a small way by saying a few ugly words here and there. Unfortunately, unless it is dealt with, it builds and becomes part of our normal speech. God's revealed will is clear on this issue. If we are his child and are in the habit of 
having filthy language on our lips, we must break the habit. Some may say that's impossible. I will tell you that it is not. Any habit that goes against God's revealed will can be mastered through his, the help of Christ. There is not one exception. God never tells us to do or not to do something without giving us the power to accomplish what he desires. Paul states in Philippians, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Philippians four thirteen. We can be more than conquerors in everything. All that is required is for it to be the desire of our heart and the relinquishment of our will for his. Just as a habit was not full-blown in one day, more than likely it will not be broken in one day. It can, but it's doubtful. We make the decision to break the habit, and we prayerfully give it to God. When we slip and fall, we repent, and he restores. I have no idea how long the process will take for you. In my own experience, some things have been taken away quickly, while others I still deal with year after year. I think he uses these to make me ever aware of my stubborn, sinful nature. He has promised me a way out when tempted. I need only to accept and act on the way that he offers. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians ten, twelve through 13 Each one of us has different bents or sins that we are more susceptible to. We may have to deal with that bent or bents for our entire life. This does not mean that we are to give in to that bent. If it goes against God's revealed will, it is wrong. We have already shown that God has provided a way out for us. It does mean, however, that we must stand with a firm resolve in our hearts to conquer that particular bent by depending on the Holy Spirit and His strength within us. Will we fall? We may. But the more we stand firm in the power of Christ and His Word, the less we will see defeat in our lives. The more we stand firm, the more we will see the removing of the strongholds. As Christians, we are not to live in bondage to sin, but in bondage to Christ. David had that down pat. He writes in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord was his stronghold. The Lord was his enabler. The Lord was his confidence, his rock. Therefore, he was able to write in verses 13 and 14, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 27, 13 through 14. Number seven, we are not to have faulty speech. James tells us we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. James 3, 2. The word fault used here means something that prevents perfection, a flaw, a blemish, 
a defect, a mistake, or an error. Paul tells us in Ephesians, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Ephesians four twenty nine. We are to use our words to build others up rather than take them down. The world would certainly be a different place if we followed Paul's instructions. Number eight, we must always remember how very powerful the tongue is. This is particularly true in dealing with our chains. We are told in James, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark, James 3, 5. Solomon also tells us the tongue is a power of life and death. Those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs eighteen twenty one. The power of the tongue should be harnessed by us and used in ways that will build others up and help them grow spiritually. There are many positive ways to help others. This does include our teens with our words. Below is a sampling of just a few followed by the appropriate scripture. I hope that this will prove to be helpful for you as it was for me. We are to encourage others. Scripture tells us the mouth of a righteous is a fountain of life, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked, Proverbs ten eleven. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word, Proverbs fifteen twenty three. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver, Proverbs twenty five eleven. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, awakens my ear to listen like one being taught, Isaiah 54. Our words also should be gentle. Scripture tells us a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, Proverbs 15.1. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Gentle and calm words can turn even the most volatile situations into a peaceful one. Of course, this can be very difficult to do with teens. My nature is to regress to about a three-year-old. Sometimes I do a little better and only go back as far as their level. It never ceases to amaze me why God hadn't given up on me. His patience is a testimony for his abundant grace. Next, we are to use our words to rebuke. We are told in Scripture, He who rebukes a man will in the end gain more favor than he who has a flattering tongue. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-three. We have to be careful with this one. First of all, because I want everyone to like me. I find it very difficult to come to someone with a negative thing about his or her behavior. I have never liked to be the bearer of bad news. Who does? I enjoy living in harmony with everyone. Yet the price of harmony becomes too expensive if it is at the cost of a soul. I'm going to repeat that. The price of harmony becomes too expensive if it is at the cost of a soul. Therefore, Scripture is clear that we are to help those who are on a self-destructive path. James tells us, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. 
Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James five nineteen through 20 Jesus also tells us in Luke, So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Luke seventeen three. And Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. The second reason we should be careful is found in the above scripture. We can fall too. We should be constantly keeping a check on our own hearts and our motives behind trying to help someone. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 6, 3-4, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, and then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. Remember, we will be held accountable for our own actions and words, not someone else's. Nextly, we are to use our words to impact, impart biblical knowledge. Solomon tells us in Proverbs thirty-one twenty-six, she speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when men will. Not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their hearts away from the truth and turn aside to myths in Second Timothy 4, 2-4. He goes on to say, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 Of course, we cannot impart biblical knowledge if we do not have it ourselves. You cannot give what you do not have. This will call for diligence and discipline on our parts. Remember that God blesses any obedience to learning his holy word. He is the author of all wisdom and knowledge and bestows it on whomever truly seeks him. Next, we are to use our words for righteousness. We are told in Proverbs, The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. Proverbs ten twenty through 21 The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is fitting, but the mouth of the wicked only what is perverse. Proverbs ten thirty one through 32 Back to our application from James regarding the tongue. God must control our tongues. Like a very steady and strong hand must control the rudder of a sailboat. So, too, must God control the tongue. Psalm 141, 3 states, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We should pray that above Scripture every morning. I believe we would have a lot less trouble in our lives if we would adhere to that. Again, in Psalm thirty-seven thirty, the mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks 
what is just. The law of his God is in his heart, and his feet do not slip. And again, James tells us that the tongue is set on fire by hell. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James 3, 6. As we know, Satan is the father of lies and practices deceit. A lying tongue is one of his greatest tools. We're told in Psalm 52, 1 through 4, Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor, you who practice deceit. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth, salah. You love every harmful word, oh, you deceitful tongue. God is very clear in Scripture about lying. It is a detestable practice to him. Solomon tells us in Proverbs, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Proverbs six, sixteen through 19. He lists it right after pride. When lists are given in the Bible, they are given in order of importance. It is interesting to me that lying is listed even before murder. In Proverbs twelve twenty two, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. Again, Proverbs fifteen four, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. A man of perverse heart does not prosper. He whose tongue is deceitful falls into trouble, Proverbs seventeen twenty. A malicious man disguises himself with his lips, but in his heart he harbors deceit. Though his speech is charming, do not believe him. For seven abominations fill his heart. His malice may be concealed by deception, but his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Proverbs twenty six twenty four through twenty six. Proverbs twenty six twenty eight states: A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. The last application is taken from James: The tongue is full of deadly poison. In James 3, 8, he tells us, But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. How do we relate to that? Just what should our application be? A deadly poison our tongues deal with delightfully is gossip. Scripture is not found at all. Scripture is not fond at all of gossip. And I wonder why. Proverbs lets us know quite clearly. Without wood... A fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. As charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for a kindling strife. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. Proverbs twenty six twenty through 22 Again, in Proverbs eleven thirteen, A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. 
Gossip and rumors should never be a part of the Christian life. It tears down and destroys another. This is in direct opposition of what a Christian should be doing for another, building and encouraging others to grow in their faith. At the end of James's analysis of the tongue, he went directly to the source, and that is the heart. If the source is pure, the outflow will be pure. This he calls wisdom, and wisdom is life-changing. You see, my friend, nothing is really known or learned until it reshapes your life. He charges us, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James 3.13 Now that we are all proficient with our tongues, let's use what we have learned on our teens. Remember, we are held accountable for the knowledge we have received. Therefore, since we are to no longer be are no longer ignorant of God's will for our speech, we must put it into practice. Most children want the approval of their parents. I'm talking about children of all ages. Even as adults, we desire their approval. Why is it then that we scrutinize their lives and are determined to point out every single flaw? Not only can this alienate them, but also it often causes them to turn a deaf ear to us. I believe that in most cases we desire the very best for them and think that by pointing out the wrong in their lives, they can change and become better people. In other words, we believe we're helping them. This is all well and good if our intentions are to raise godly kids. If, however, our intentions are to make them like us or what we wish we were, our motive is wrong and it needs adjustment. Let me explain. As Christian parents, our goal for our children is to raise them up in the Lord, not us. We are seeking godliness, not humanness. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 12, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believer in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. 1 Timothy 4, 7-12. The word myths Paul uses in verse 7 is the Greek word mythos. That means something that is fabricated by the mind and set over what is real. It is where we get the word mythology. We are to avoid these profane mindsets. We are to command and teach the truth because our children are looked upon as an extension of ourselves. Out of pride, we are prone to impress upon them our desires and character traits. In doing this, what we end up with is something that resembles us. Yikes! This, my friend, is not God's objective, and neither should it be ours. The goal both for our children and us is to be conformed into the image of Christ. If that is our motive behind helping our children with, the short, with their shortcomings, then we are right on track. If it is not, then we need to adjust. Let me illustrate this point. Take clothes, for example. This is an area that is generally an issue among parents and teens. The questions we should ask ourselves are, does it cover their body parts that need to be covered? If you have a daughter, 
Does her outfit scream inappropriate behavior welcomed here? Does she dress in a fashion that would cause her male friends to stumble? Girls need to be very sensitive to this, as it can be a real problem for their male counterparts. Is their outfit cultic? Does it sport some inappropriate message? Does it offend a particular group of people? Anything that opposes Christianity should not be tolerated. These are some basic biblical reasons to confront our teenager's dress. I'm sure you can think of more, but you get the idea. If it goes against what the Bible says, then it needs correcting. Otherwise, it's just your taste or opinion that you're forcing upon your teen. Trust me, there are many more battles you would rather win than the battle over clothes, as long as it falls under God's standards. As parents of teens, we must choose our battles wisely. It is important for us not to major on the minors. If we choose to do this, we run the risk of losing the most important ones. It will also behoove us to remember that love compels, but anger and resentment repels. Jesus shows us this so perfectly throughout his ministry here on earth. The most wonderful example of his constraining love is evidenced in his encounter with the woman at the well. Here Jesus confronts a woman living in sin in such a way that he not only draws her to believe and accept his gift of salvation, but because of his word she becomes an amazing evangelist. Below is the story found in Scripture. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman? How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, John 4, 7 through 9. Jesus did not associate with, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. The Jews believed the Samaritans were unclean. Therefore, a Jew would become ceremonially unclean if he used a drinking vessel belonging to or handled by a Samaritan. Also, Jewish religious leaders would rarely speak to women in public. The woman was in shock that Jesus would even speak to her, much less ask her for a drink. The word ask, used in verse 9, is the Greek word aito, which means to ask, request, or beg. The seeking by an inferior from a superior. Isn't that interesting? Christ uses this particular word for ask instead of the Greek word eratio, which some scholars believe denotes asking between equals rather than from an inferior to a superior. Whenever Christ would make a request of the Father, he would only ask the, use the word ratio. He is seemingly trying to put her at ease by not lording over his rightful position. That is so Jesus. He is God, for heaven's sakes. Yet he does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, as Paul says, and he lowers himself to save a soul. Two other places in Scripture to note a request for water as Jesus did. All three requests were made with the intention of giving the giver something far greater in return. The first was in Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham's servant asked Rebekah for a drink of water. In return, he wanted her to be the bride of Isaac. The second example is found in 1 Kings chapter 17 when Elijah asked the widow for a drink of water. In return, God provided for she and her son during the entire drought. Jesus wanted to give the Samaritan woman eternal life and in return return for her drink of water. 
What are some important points to glean and apply from this passage? First, I believe when we are relating to our teens, we must be careful not to lord our authority over them. We are not equals. They probably already know that. We are given the position of authority over our kids, but, and this is a big but, we stifle interaction and a closeness we could have if we are constantly being the big cheese, the big boss. This concept is difficult for dogmatic, always right people like myself. We are not always right, and our kids are not always wrong. We will see later on in the same passage that the Samaritan woman was in the wrong, yet the way Jesus handled her was not to lord his authority over her, but rather to get her to see for herself her error. As Christian parents, our request for water should bring a greater benefit to our kids than what we are asking of them. For example, we may make the request for them to study the Bible. If obedient, what they receive is far greater than what we have asked of them. Or take, for instance, godly behavior. They will always receive blessings in abundance for obedience. God will always bless obedience. Continuing on in the passage of the Samaritan woman at the well, we find in John four ten through 14 Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You've nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus here, in contrasting the literal water, which only temporarily satisfies with the living water, which is the gift of God that quenches one's spiritual thirst and is synonymous with eternal life. The word gift used in verse 10 is the Greek word doria. It means a free gift, gracious or extremely generous or lavish gesture. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that if she only understood what he was offering her, she would have asked for it. He says the same thing to us. If we only realized what he is offering us, we would be begging for that which totally satisfies. Just as oftentimes we do not get it right away, she did not grasp what he was offering. He goes on to tell her again in verse 14 what he is offering. His word choice for spring is the Greek word pigi. That means a fountain or well, metaphorically, of life-giving doctrine an emblem of the highest enjoyment. The same word is used in Revelation chapter 7, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Revelation seven seventeen. This, of course, depicting how glorious heaven will be. But you see, the exciting thing is that Christ is not only offering us salvation, He is also offering us what will bring us the highest enjoyment in the here and now. 
Notice that he did not add the word knucklehead to verse 14 when, when she did not understand what he was offering her. Sometimes what we offer to our teens for their best seems so blatantly obvious to us that we cannot understand how they could possibly miss it. But like the woman at the well, it goes right over their heads. This calls for patient endurance on our parts. Jesus gently leads her into the truth. He does this by leaving, leading her to her own realization of sin in her life. Scripture adds in John four sixteen through 19. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can tell that you are a prophet. I can see that you are a prophet. To get our teens to the realization of error in their lives can often be quite difficult. One way that has worked for me is to use a third-party illustration of their particular problem. This keeps them from feeling attacked, and it helps them to ingest the truth without becoming defensive. Remember, with your teens, as well as with yourself, realization of the problem is the first step in correcting the poor behavior. Did it work for the woman at the well? Let's just take a look. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him in John four twenty eight through thirty. In John four thirty nine through forty two it states Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. That's so awesome. Because of her realization of the truth and the acceptance of the gift offered her, she became a first-class evangelist. Many believed, Scripture says, because of her testimony. I believe Jesus knew exactly how to handle the error in the life of the unbeliever. No surprises here. Let us put into practice the example we have seen through the life of Christ, and let us start with our teens. God's Word is true. God's Word can be trusted. What he says, he means, if you are obedient to his will for raising your kids, he will bless your obedience. One area he blessed exceedingly in our family was the area of Bible study and scripture memory. When my kids were in their early teens, I was burdened by the fact that not only did they need to have a quiet time on their own, but they needed to be in the Word together. I believed that they needed direction in helping them apply biblical truths to their lives. I admit that I am a morning person. I love to get up before everyone else, have my quiet time in prayer, not to mention coffee. This sets the tone for my entire day. Once the decision was made to have a Bible study and memory time together, the implementation was easy. I would get up and have my quiet time, and then I would get the kids up. While they were getting ready for school, I would fix lunches and then their breakfast. They were to be down by 7. 
That was the most difficult part. I'm sure that was not hard to guess. I would start calling them before the deadline to try to get them down on time. While they were eating breakfast, I would either go over what God had taught me that morning, or we would read passages of Scripture that I believe they could readily relate to. We would always make application so that the Word would be relative and alive to them. We would discuss issues important to them and find out what God had to say about those issues. Now comes the kicker. We would memorize blocks of passages of Scripture. We would do this by going over a verse at a time until it was down perfectly in our minds. I use the word we because I would do it with them. Every day we would go over all the verses in the passage we had learned, not just the one we were working on. You cannot believe how easy it was. God blessed that small amount of effort to the greatest extent. It certainly was not always without complaining or grumbling, but looking back, I would not trade that time for anything. Most families object because they do not believe they have the time to study the Bible together and to memorize Scripture. I realize that all families have different schedules, and morning may not be their best time, but every family has been given the same 24-hour gift each day. Find the time. It is a decision that you will not regret. After our study and memory work, we would pray out loud together. What a precious memory I have of praying for each of our needs as well as for the needs of others. It was always exciting for the kids as well as me to see God answering our petitions. I know I'm repetitive, but if your kids are still at home, do not miss this opportunity. You will be richly rewarded. Having children and raising them is really a series of letting go. Little by little, we loosen our reins, and they are given more and more freedom until they are able to run on their own. As stated earlier, as parents, we are to be working ourselves out of a job. This is so perfectly illustrated in the way an eagle teaches her little eaglets to fly. From the nest high in the cliff, she nudges her eaglet with her beak until it falls out of the safe haven. As it starts to fall, she swoops down under it and catches her baby on her wing. She then proceeds to fly a mile up in the air. Turning sideways, she again allows the eaglet to fall. It flaps its tiny wings for perhaps a thousand feet. All the while, she is circling and watching for distress. Again, the eaglet is caught in the wind of its mom, wing of its mom. They go through this procedure again and again. And again, each time the eagle allows the eaglet to fall further, getting closer and closer to the ground. Little by little, the eaglet learns to fly. The eagle knows when the eaglet is ready. It's getting weary and when it's time to take rest. This is such a great analogy for us as parents. While still under our protection and watchful eye, we should allow our teens to make decisions, allow them to fail. Out of this will come blessings for making right choices and consequences for choosing the wrong paths. Do not try to cover up for your teen's poor choices. Experiencing both blessings and consequences are both invaluable in the maturation process. We may not always be around. God may choose to take us home. Our desire for our teens is that they will be able to make correct choices throughout their lives and the best time to begin is while they are under our watchful eye. Another tidbit that may prove to be helpful in raising teens is to remember that laughter dispels much tension. Things can be heavy and heated, and something can happen to make everyone laugh in the loud 
and the load immediately lightens. Laughter gets those happy chemicals flowing through your brain, easing the tension. I'm not saying that you should laugh away your problems. I wish it were that easy. Nor am I saying that we should allow disrespect. What I am saying is that sometimes it may help the situation to have a hearty ha-ha. Very often, the only thing that comes out of a heated argument is high blood pressure. Remember what scriptures tell us. A cheerful heart is good medicine, Proverbs seventeen twenty-two. We also need to let our teens have a chance to give their opinion. It's important that we hear them out. They should know that whatever matters to them also matters to us. Keep communications open. We may not like what we hear at times, but at least with open communications, we can give them biblical guidance. This should always be done in a loving manner. This brings up an important issue, especially during the teens. Repetitive ragging reaps resentment and may cause riotous rebellion or a reclusive response. This truth is very difficult for me to grasp. It is so hard to keep my big fat mouth shut, especially if I know that I'm right on an issue. I just want to keep telling them and telling them and telling them. You get the picture. Fortunately, my husband is wonderful at keeping his cool and perspective. He can make people see the error of their ways with very few words. I am learning by the hardest to give them the facts based on biblical principles once or twice and then get on my face in prayer before God and giving it to him. Ragging and nagging rarely accomplish positive results. I do not like to be nagged. For that matter, I do not know anyone who does. It's so easy to fall into the habit. We reason that we're just trying to help our teens. Our motives may be ever so pure, but the results are negative nonetheless. Now, when I find myself ragging, I try to repeat, repent quickly, and God thankfully restores faithfully. It would do us well to remember that just as our teens do not have all the answers, neither do we. This may come as a surprise to some of us. Indeed, we can learn a great deal from our teens. I do not believe I would have ever learned how to set the clock on the microwave had it not been for my daughter, not to mention how to use the printer on my computer. Seriously, my kids have opened my eyes to many areas in my life that needed attention. I'm grateful for their perception and honesty. Quite frankly, it is our family that knows us the best. We may be able to hide our true self from others, but the ones who live under our roofs, they know us. We must realize that we are all in this together. Not one of us has yet achieved perfection. Not one. But as Paul said, we're pressing on toward the goal to win the prize. This is a good time to discuss setting boundaries for our teens. Everyone needs boundaries. Even before the fall, when everything was perfect, God set boundaries. God tells Adam in Genesis two fifteen through 17 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge and good of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. God wanted Adam to work the garden. This was not a punishment. He wanted Adam to be productive. This was before the fall. Work is not bad. It's a gift. It is good to be productive. When we are not being productive is when we are getting into trouble. This is very true for teens as well. Adam also had the freedom to eat from any tree but one. 
God set boundaries for him. He was to work and he was not to eat from one of the trees. We all know the story. Adam exceeded one of the boundaries with the help of his new wife, and the rest is history. They had to suffer the consequences, and what a consequence it was. Did God love Adam and Eve? Of course he did. He allowed them to suffer so that they would learn obedience. God always has consequences to sin. Always. As parents, we too should follow through with consequences for exceeding the boundaries that we have set. What type of boundaries should we set? The obvious ones are those set in God's Word. This puts the burden on us to know what God has said in His Word and also for us to be obedient to it ourselves. If God says we are not to do something, for example, lie, steal, murder, commit adultery, etc., we are not to do that. This is God's revealed will. Other boundaries could include curfews and responsibilities in the home and at school. We should not overwhelm them with tons of rules and regulations, especially as they mature and prove themselves trustworthy. The process should be that we give them more and more freedom as they grow older, not less and less. More freedom provided they are trying to make correct choices. Most of us have the tendency to give out more rules and regulations as our kids become older. I'm sure it's because we know all too well the kind of trouble they can get into. What types of consequences should we enforce? They should be immediate, severe, and not long-term. They should be administered out of love and never anger. They should fit the trespass. Grounding for a year is a bit out of hand. First of all, who's going to enforce it? We should never give out a consequence we cannot enforce, ever. It would be like making idle threats that they know we'll never carry out or keep. This is just a waste of our breath and time. If we do not mean it, we should not say it. Take away all privileges, but do it for a day, or perhaps a week, any longer, and it loses its punch and purpose. Besides that, it is painful to enforce. Remember, what you inflict, you must enforce. Rewarding good behavior always seemed to work better for us than punitive action. This may have something to do with our greed. (laughs) Our kids always seemed to opt for the prize if one was placed in their reach for proper behavior and for whatever it takes to bring forth obedience out of our children, whether it be rewards or punishments. You know what works best for your kids. We must be faithful in our responsibility. Having teens can be a wonderful experience. It can also be an awfully hard one. Just remember to set boundaries for them that are enforced. Love them and give them faithful biblical instruction. If we do not seem to be getting through to our teens, we can remind them that in Old Testament times they stone rebellious kids. (laughs) And I do not mean with something you smoke. If you would like a reference point on that, it's Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. Of course, I'm only teasing, but it's important to note how very serious God takes rebellion. On the other hand, we should remind our teens how much he approves of our obedience. Paul tells us in Ephesians, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. God promises them that it will go well for them if they are obedient. Paul states 
in Colossians. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Colossians 3.20 The words Paul uses here for pleases are the Greek words emi, which means to be. The and eurastus, y'all can tell I'm a Greek uh, scholar, which means well-pleasing, acceptable, that which God wills and recognizes. Not only does God instruct our kids, he recognizes their obedience. This is very pleasing to him. I think it's important for our teens to know this. We must remember that just as it sometimes goes against our nature to act in a Christ-like manner, we do so out of our obedience and love for Jesus. This can be true for our teens, too. We may not always feel like being obedient, but we must remember that our obedience to us is being obedient to God's will. He will bless that. He will always bless that. Rebellion can be very difficult to handle with our teens. Unfortunately, there's no magic formula, no twitching our noses to make everything fine. We can be model parents doing all Scripture calls for us to do and still have rebellious children. This calls for patient endurance of the saints. If we have done our job, then we must prayerfully allow God to do His. We must claim His promises and rely on His strength, always remembering that God is good and that He has purpose in all things. We may never understand the why in this life, but be assured, my friends, we will have complete knowledge when we see Him face to face. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. How do we handle the rebel? We are told in Scripture that we are to despise the sin, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh in Jude 23. But we are to love the sinner. We are never to condone or accept what God plainly tells is wrong. But we are called to be merciful and loving. This is very difficult. Indeed, we cannot accomplish this without our, within our own abilities. It is Christ through us that can love and be merciful to the rebel. There is certainly nothing natural about loving someone who has wounded you deeply. It calls for total dependence on Christ. Guess what? That is exactly what the Christian walk is all about in every area. We must have a total dependence on Jesus. Jesus does not want us to part. Jesus does not want part of us. He wants all of us. Just as he was telling the rich young ruler who asked him what was required of him to inherit eternal life, Jesus replied that he should obey the commandments. At this, young man replied that he had. He had kept them since he was a child. Looking at him with eyes of love, Jesus told him to sell all that he had and give it to the poor, and he would have treasures in heaven. At this, the young man turned around and sadly went away because he had great wealth. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus zeroed in on what the young man was not willing to give up. He always will. Whatever area we are not willing to relinquish our control over is the area he wants. Not for himself, but for our good. Whatever we, whatever we do not relinquish has us captive. And we are slaves to that which captivates us. This, of course, is contrary to Christianity. 
We are to be slaves to Christ and Christ alone. Back to our example of loving the unlovely. If we fail to let him love our our rebel through us, we not only fail him, we fail our rebel as well. Who knows if God has not chosen us to love our rebel into the fold? Allow Christ to do this thing through you. It is not natural, but it is obedience. There's a grand example in Scripture of forgiveness and love toward a rebel. I know this comes as a great surprise to you. It is, of course, the story of the prodigal son. It is found in the book of Luke. To me, the prodigal represents every one of us who comes to Christ. You see, we're all, we all come to Jesus in the state the prodigal is in. Without hope, poverty-stricken, empty, and absolutely no way of becoming filled on our own. All of our resources spent, all of our abilities and honors cast aside, stripped, laid bare, naked. That is what he wants. You're probably saying to yourself that you do not want that. Sounds terrible and unappealing. But that what, but what we must realize is that apart from Christ, we are terrible and unappealing. The only way Christ can fill us is if we're empty. And the only way worth life worth living is the life filled with Jesus. Try to prove me wrong if you desire. But in the end, I believe you will discover the vain emptiness and shallowness of anything and everything apart from Christ. Back to the story of the prodigal son we find in chapter 15 of Luke. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Luke fifteen, eleven through 13 What the prodigal did was unheard of. He basically told his father that he wished he was dead and that he wanted what he would, co- would come to him after his death. Of course, you see in verse 13 that he, he had a wonderful reason for asking for the jack. He desired to do his own will and not his father's. Let's see what happens to him. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that kind of old country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Luke fifteen, fourteen through 16. He begins to be in need. He discovers firsthand how cold and hard the world can be. He was starving. Scripture says, and no one gave him anything. He comes to his senses, and we are told. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Luke fifteen seventeen through 19. Smart boy. He remembered his father and how good his father had treated even his hired men. He thinks, I will go home and I will go back to my father. I wonder how many rebels think the same thoughts. And I wonder how many fathers react the same way. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put him on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Luke fifteen twenty through 24 Did you notice that he was still a long way off when the father spotted him? That father was looking for that boy. We may have ten kids, but if one of them is off course, that is where our focus is. When they get back on track, there is more than enough reasons to celebrate. Sometimes, like us, our teens make wrong choices and end up longing for the pig's pods. We must be merciful and loving just as we desire mercy and love ourselves. Unfortunately, all too often we resemble the other son rather than the father. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fat calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to come in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered, Father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have had had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Luke fifteen, twenty five through thirty two. In reality, the elder son was just as lost as the prodigal. He was filled with bitterness, resentment, and the pride of his own works. He resented the fact that he had worked and the prodigal had squandered. This shows his his work to be out of duty or obligation rather than love. This proved to be an attitude of the heart check, and unfortunately for the older son, he did not pass. His resentment and bitterness blinded him to the joy of having his brother return to the fold. This is such an easy human pattern to fall into. Are we bitter because they are forgiven? Are we resentful because we believe we do not get that they do not get what they deserved? One thing that has truly helped me in my Christian walk is to always remember that I have no rights. I am called to deny self as a Christian. Apart from Christ, I deserve nothing but eternal separation from God. These are hard facts, but true. As God's child, I am receiving something that I do not deserve. Through the blood of Christ and on his merit alone can I enter into the very presence of God. There is not one thing that I have done to deserve such amazing grace. In light of that fact, why should I ever be resentful or bitter because grace was bestowed on someone else? We are called to be merciful to others. In the book of Micah, we find, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8. Jesus himself tells us in Luke, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Luke six thirty six. Bitterness and resentment are cancerous. They are consuming and unredeeming. Forgiveness and mercy 
are for your own well-being. They bring life and health to your bones. The main person that bitterness and resentment hurts is the person that is bitter and resentful. They harbor and harbor and dwell and dwell until it becomes a festering wound of which we all know it is very pleasant to have or even to be around. It is not very pleasant to have or be around. Take a tip from Barney Fife and nip it in the bud. Give it to, the, give it to Christ and do not take it back. Therein is true freedom. Therein is where freedom is, freedom is found. Although the teenage years can be very trying, they are also very rewarding. Teens are fun to talk to, laugh with. They keep us young, not to mention humble and exhausted. And you have to admit it is seldom dull. There's always some sort of action going on, be it good or bad. I suppose God uses the last burst of energy from us on our teens so that we can truly enjoy the quiet of the empty nest, that very short period between teens and grandchildren. I also believe that God uses the teenager to get our hearts prepared for our kids to leave home. Let me explain this. If you look at your four-year-old, it would break your heart to know they were about to leave home and go away to school. They're young and innocent and not prepared. On the other hand, when you look at your teenager and think that they're about to leave and go away to school, well, you get the picture. Your heart is just made ready. We are more able to release our kids as we see they are prepared to take on a more responsible and responsibility in making wise choices. Indeed, this is a time for us to see the fruits of our labor. As always, let love be that which motivates you in dealing with your teens, or anybody else for that matter. Paul gives us a wonderful definition of love in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. In closing this chapter on teens, it's fitting that we end on this definition. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13.